Walt Disney glanced at the passing landscape through the train window. The trip couldn't be over soon enough. Walt was miserable, his spirits utterly crushed by what had happened in New York. It was 1928, and Disney was returning to Hollywood from a meeting with his distributors. Oswald the Rabbit, their precocious cartoon that Disney had created from the deep well of his imagination, was no longer his, all because of a contract he had signed years ago when he was desperate for work and eager to prove himself as an animator. Oswald was a cultural success, but Disney wouldn't get to partake in it. Disney needed a distraction, and so he started doodling. If he couldn't have Oswald, then he would create a new character, one that he would keep entirely for himself and his company. As he scribbled, a design started to come into shape. It was a cartoon mouse, stocky, with a pointed nose and big buttons on his shorts. Walt named him Mickey. He didn't know it at the time, but he had just created an icon. Decades later, as Walt Disney laid on his deathbed, he would be quoted as saying that his accomplishments, his company, his theme parks, and his very legacy all started with a mouse. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing animator, director, and entertainment mogul Walt Disney. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Walt Disney. Walter Elias Disney was born on December 5, 1901, in Chicago, Illinois. He was the fourth son of Elias and Flora Disney. Walt didn't have much stability during his childhood. His father, Elias, worked to support the family through a number of odd jobs while his mother stayed home and raised Walt, his three brothers, and his younger sister, Ruth. The family moved a lot as Elias struggled to find work. By 1906, when Walt was four, the Disneys couldn't afford to keep living in Chicago. Elias moved his family to Missouri, where his brother Robert owned some land. Elias leased a portion of this land with the intent of starting a farm. He knew he was going to rely on his sons to work for him if the farm was to succeed, but Walt's brothers had other plans. Walt's two oldest brothers, Herbert and Ray, had no love for their father, who expected them to work for him for free out of an obligation to the family. Soon after the family relocated, Herbert and Ray left to go back to Chicago and start their own lives. Though Walt was only four and his older brother Roy was only 13, they were now the only boys left, and Elias needed them to work. Walt had no interest in manual labor. From an early age, he showed an affinity for drawing and sketching. 
It was a common occurrence on the Disney farm during those years for Elias to find Walt sitting under a tree, ignoring his chores and doodling on whatever surface he could find. The family was poor, and Walt couldn't afford proper paper or even a notebook. Though Disney historians have compiled a huge library of cartoons that Walt drew over the course of his life, there are few surviving sketches from his early childhood. That's because Walt drew most of his early pictures on toilet paper. The family couldn't afford to just waste toilet paper like that, and they would use it even after Walt had drawn on it. It probably wasn't the most encouraging thing for young Walt to see his art treated like that. It certainly sent a message. Elias was strict, and he didn't support Walt's drawing. As he grew up, Walt started avoiding his home and his father, choosing instead to spend his time riding the train into town. He befriended an eccentric old physician named Doc Sherwood. When Sherwood learned that Walt could draw, he paid Walt a nickel for a drawing of himself riding a horse. It was the first time anyone had paid Walt Disney for his art. Walt was hooked by the feeling. He may not have realized it then, but he had taken his first step toward becoming a professional cartoonist. In 1911, Elias Disney got sick, and the family had to sell the farm and move to Kansas City. Elias bought the rights to distribute some local newspapers, and he employed 9-year-old Walt and 18-year-old Roy in his enterprise. It wasn't a great time in Walt's life. He and Roy woke up at 4.30 every morning to deliver papers. After hours of working, Walt had to go to grammar school. Then, after class, he'd go back on his route and deliver the evening editions. Walt performed poorly in school. This was in part because he was often sleep-deprived from the long hours of delivering papers, but also because, even at that age, Walt showed little interest in academics. He knew that he just wanted to draw. Walt's relationship with his father deteriorated over the years. Elias thought Walt was lazy and weak for focusing his efforts on cartoons instead of work. Walt felt that Elias was cruel and cheap. Things only got worse when Roy ran away to live with his older brothers. Walt was now the only Disney son in the household. To escape his father and his dismal work life, Walt would often hang out at Bert Hudson's barbershop in Kansas City. Hudson loved Walt's drawings and gave Walt free haircuts in exchange for hand-drawn caricatures. Walt relished the praise he received from Hudson and the other customers. He wasn't used to adults who supported his creative pursuits. Walt adored the sensation he got from entertaining people. As he continued to grow up, he started going to vaudeville shows and the cinema. He watched the crudely animated cartoons that played before the main feature and started to suspect that he may be able to make something better. To Walt, making a cartoon wasn't enough. He wanted to challenge himself to innovate and to find new ways of making entertainment. Walt graduated grammar school in 1917 when he was 15, just in time for the Disney patriarch to move the family yet again. The paper distribution business was floundering, so in 1917, Elias invested in a jelly factory in Chicago and accepted a manager position there. He moved Flora and Ruth back to the Windy City. Walt stayed behind, however. His brother Herbert moved to Kansas City with his new family and took up residence in Elias's old house. 
Roy also moved to Kansas City for a job, and so Walt got to spend the summer working and living with his brothers. It was one of the happiest periods of Walt's life thus far, largely because he was away from his father. Walt got a job working on various trains selling concessions. He loved riding trains, though he was always more content to sit and watch the passing landscape than actually do his job. He daydreamed of a train that traveled around a city of his own making, a colorful, cartoon-like fantasy land where families could come and be together. He didn't know it then, but that daydream would one day become a reality. At the end of that summer, Walt had to move to Chicago, back in with his parents, so that he could enroll in high school. There, he landed his first steady gig as a cartoonist for the school newspaper, and he earned a reputation for his cartoons that captured his generation's anxiety about World War I. The prospect of the war frightened Walt, but he wanted to do his part. He even tried to join the army while he was still underage. He was rejected, so he then applied to the American Ambulance Corps through the Red Cross, again lying about his age on the application. He was accepted as an ambulance driver and sent overseas to France. The war was actually already over by the time Walt arrived in Europe in November of 1918, but the Army still needed drivers for ambulances and military officers. Walt served in France for almost a year. When he had free time, he drew caricatures of himself and his fellow soldiers on the side of his ambulance. The cartoons became popular among the men, and some soldiers even asked Walt to draw cartoons on their vehicles. Some of the cartoons ended up being published in Stars and Stripes, the military newspaper. France changed Walt for better and for worse. He learned the value of hard work for himself rather than for his father. But it was also during the war that Walt developed a smoking habit that he would indulge until his death. Walt returned to the United States in the fall of 1919. He'd graduated high school, and Elias made it clear that he expected Walt to take a job at the jelly factory for reduced pay, of course. Walt was fed up with his father. Like his brothers before him, he moved out of his parents' house and set off to make his own way in life. He relocated back to Kansas City at the end of 1919 and moved in with his brother, Roy. He started looking for any work that would help him improve his skills as an animator. Even then, at the age of 18, Walt Disney had big ambitions for his career. He was ready to make his impact on the world as a professional cartoonist. However, the world had a few hard lessons in store for Walt. We'll discuss his early career and the first ever Disney cartoons after this. Now back to the story. In 1919, Walt Disney was new to Kansas City and was hungry for work. Walt's brother Roy helped him get an apprenticeship at Pesman Rubin, a commercial art studio. Walt worked on everything from restaurant programs to large ads for Kansas City's premier movie theater, The Newman. The work didn't satisfy Walt, but it paid the bills. Still, Walt looked at the cartoon ads he drew that played in movie theaters and held on to a dream that he'd one day see his own cartoons play on the big screen. A few weeks into the job, Walt befriended Ub Iwerks, a young man around Walt's age who shared in Walt's dream to make cartoons. 
the two young men quit their jobs in early 1920 and started their own cartooning company, iWorks Disney. They landed a few small gigs doing illustrations for magazine ads. It was during this time that Walt started to get a grasp of how to manage a working partnership and designate tasks. They started working in a system where Walt would draw the characters and handle business affairs, while Ub would do the more time-consuming work of shading and lettering. But Walt was new and inexperienced in the world of business, and iWorks Disney was never able to secure enough work to keep the company afloat. The company shut down after only one month. Walt and Ub went back to the commercial cartoon world, They both took jobs at the Kansas City Ad Company as animators. Walt didn't like the job. He felt the animation work they did there was primitive and low quality. Animation was a new medium at the time, and most artists were still developing methods for making animation on a professional level. Companies that produced animation, especially commercial ones, put more stock in a big output than on making a quality product. Walt realized that with a little time and effort, He could produce better quality animation on his own than what the Kansas City ad company was making. He borrowed some equipment from work and spent his free time at home experimenting with different animation techniques. After a few days of trial and error, Walt produced a short cartoon of his own hand as it drew characters. He sold the cartoon to the Newman Theater and got to see it play before a feature film. The theater liked Walt's work and commissioned more animated shorts. Walt was so excited about the deal that he didn't really negotiate, nor did he factor in the actual cost of his work. He ended up losing money on the deal. It would not be the last time that Walt's eagerness to work put him in a bad business position. Still, the cartoons made Walt a minor celebrity in Kansas City. People came to associate him with new, entertaining cartoons that played before the movies. But Walt's time in Kansas City would soon come to a close. In 1920, Roy Disney was diagnosed with tuberculosis, which at that point in history was a severely deadly disease. He wasn't given long to live and was sent to a sanatorium in California to spend his final months in a warmer climate. The rest of Walt's family also moved across the country at around that same time. Walt had no one left in Kansas City, and he began to wonder how to take the next step in his career. He knew he needed to make more money. The shorts he made for the Newman Theater took up a lot of his time and cash reserves. In a last-ditch effort to cover his personal losses, Disney began working on a separate project based on Lewis Carroll's novel, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The short was an ambitious hybrid of live action and animated film. It featured a live action Alice set against a cartoon backdrop. The project was ambitious, and Walt really wasn't in the position to fund it. He scrabbled together what resources he could and called in favors from friends to work for free on the short. He finally finished the project in 1923 and made a desperate effort to solicit distributors to buy the film. However, he ran out of time. In 1923, he was evicted from the office where he produced the Newman shorts and was forced to declare bankruptcy. It was a devastating blow to Walt's self-esteem. He had no money, no business, no family to support him, 
All he had to show was a short film that no one wanted to buy. But Walt wasn't going to let life defeat him so easily. He still had faith in the Alice short film. If it didn't sell, it may at least serve as a calling card to help secure future work. But that would mean he'd need to go where the work was. So in July of 1923, Walt packed up and boarded a train for Hollywood. Walt was still passionate about animation, but he thought that the Alice short could help him land gigs as a live-action director since he had directed those sequences himself. But before he could start looking for jobs, he received a life-changing letter. Margaret Winkler was a New York-based film distributor who Walt had contacted during his last few months in Kansas City. She'd finally watched his Alice short and saw the potential for a lucrative new short series. She sent Walt a contract that optioned 12 more Alice short films at a rate of $1,500 per short, or around $22,000 today. Walt, still young and eager, signed the contract blindly, despite the clause that stated Winkler would own the rights to all the Alice films, as well as anything else Disney produced during the term of the contract. By that point, Roy Disney had miraculously recovered from his tuberculosis. He was still living in a medical center for veterans, but Walt convinced his brother to discharge himself and come help run the business. Roy did so reluctantly. He knew that Walt needed someone to advise him, particularly in business matters. The brothers secured a loan and founded Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio at the end of 1923. They launched right into work. The contract with Winkler stipulated only three weeks of production per short. Walt and Roy hired as many animators as they could afford and quickly set up an assembly line-like production process. It was during this time that Walt began his practice of hiring an exclusively female pool of colorists to fill in the individual animation cells. Cell-driven animation was the primary method of animated production for the bulk of the 20th century. It required artists to hand-color every individual frame of the movie. When you consider that a second of film contains 24 frames and that the average Disney film was around 90 minutes... Mm, that's a lot of paint. Feature-length animated movies often employed dozens of colorists to make the workflow move faster. Walt preferred to hire women because, well, women laborers were cheaper than men. Ironically, it was this practice that ultimately led Walt to meet his future wife, Lillian Bounds. Lillian was almost three years Walt Sr., and at first, didn't have much of an impression of her boss, beyond the fact that he never seemed to stop talking about his ideas. Walt, as a boss, wasn't the most emotional or communicative man, but at the end of every workday, Walt would drive some of his employees home, including Lillian. Lillian soon realized that Walt always dropped her off last because he wanted to spend time with her. A courtship followed, and the two were married in 1925. It was a happy time for Walt personally. Professionally, though, things were about to take a turn. Back in 1924, Margaret Winkler married a fellow distributor named Charles Mintz and then retired to focus on raising their son. Mintz took over all of Winkler's operations including the Alice films. Margaret had been generous to Walt and his company. She shared profits beyond what the contract stipulated. Mintz was far less generous. 
he started cutting back on the profits shared with Disney. At the same time, Mint secured a broader distribution deal with Universal Studios, which led to a larger order for more Alice shorts. Disney saw a pay cut even as he was being put on the line for 18 more Alice films at a reduced turnaround of two and a half weeks. He had trouble managing the pressure. Less money and more work meant that the quality of Disney's films went down. He became curt and even sometimes hostile with his overworked and underpaid animators when he felt their work wasn't up to snuff, which it rarely was. It was under these dismal conditions that Disney created and produced the first Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoons in 1927. Mintz saw Oswald as a cash cow and demanded that Disney make more, even as he was still struggling to churn out Alice films. Walt didn't balk at the horribly unreasonable order. He still remembered the shame of losing everything when he wasn't able to complete his first Alice cartoon in time. He wouldn't allow himself to lose another company. Rather than push back against Mintz and his unrealistic demands, Walt pushed his employees even harder. Resentment grew in the Disney offices, with a growing cabal of animators conspiring to oust Walt from his own company. Things came to a head in March of 1928. Walt went to New York to meet with Mintz and beg for more time and money to help take the pressure off his workers. But when Walt arrived at the meeting, he found himself in a trap. Mintz had actually been conspiring to remove Walt and Roy from the company. He even had the support of most of Walt's animators, which was ironic since it was Mintz's demands that led to the poor working conditions in the first place. Walt tried to negotiate, using Oswald the Rabbit as leverage, but Mintz nearly laughed him out of the room. Oswald had been created while Walt was under contract for Universal. That meant Universal owned the rights to the character. Walt had nothing to bargain with. If he wanted to keep his company, he'd shut up and complete the terms of his current contract, as stipulated by Mintz. The train ride home was one of the longest in Walt's life. He felt defeated. He didn't know what to do. Desperate, he turned to the one thing that calmed him, drawing. Walt began to conceive of a character that he could use to replace Oswald. A form came into shape, a cartoon mouse that we all know today as Mickey. When he got off the train in Hollywood, Walt took a step back from his company. Starting in April 1928, Roy oversaw operations as Disney Studios completed its obligation to the Universal contract over the next few months. Walt spent his newfound free time working on a separate project. Walt's old friend, Ub Iwerks, who by then had relocated to California to work for Disney, helped Walt redesign the mouse sketch to the iconic cartoon we know today. Looking at Ub's design, Walt knew the character deserved a special debut. After two Mickey-centric shorts, made in the then-current style of pairing a silent film reel with a separate generic sound reel, Walt decided to try something brand new. He blended the animation film reel with a soundtrack. The result was Steamboat Willie, the first ever Disney animated short to feature structured sound. Walt debuted Steamboat Willie at the end of 1928. It was a smash hit, and Walt, 
free from his obligations to Mints or Universal, was free to field offers from new distributors. He signed a deal with Columbia Pictures for more Mickey cartoons and other shorts. But this time, he made sure that he and his company retained all rights and ownership to what he made. After years of being the victim of bad deals, Walt had finally learned how to play the game. The next few years saw Disney rise even more. He followed up Steamboat Willie with Silly Symphonies, a series of cartoon musicals. Columbia distributed these shorts in the U.S. and overseas, and their success showed Walt that his work had a larger global appeal than he previously thought. He continued experimenting. Flowers and Trees, released in 1932, was the first cartoon to ever be released on three-strip Technicolor, a new form of film that allowed for a wider spectrum of color. It won the first-ever Academy Award for Best Animated Short, and its success allowed Walt to expand the studio operations and hire more animators. As the business expanded, so did Walt's family. In 1933, after years of trying to conceive, Lillian gave birth to her and Walt's first daughter, Diane. They wanted to have another child, but continued having difficulty conceiving. They eventually adopted another baby and named her Sharon May. By 1934, Walt was feeling restless yet again. Thanks to his work, sound and color in animated shorts were no longer a novelty, and he was eager to once again create something that audiences hadn't seen before. Walt had a new dream. He didn't want people to enjoy his cartoons as shorts that played before a feature film. He wanted to make that feature film. So, with his story team, Walt began to work on what would become the first ever feature-length animated cartoon. They pulled from a Brothers Grimm fairy tale about a maiden who comes afoul of a wicked witch, but is saved by seven unlikely dwarves. We'll discuss the legacy of Disney feature animation after this. Now back to the story. In 1934, Walt Disney had committed himself and his movie studio to create the first-ever feature-length cartoon, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The film was a massive undertaking and offered abundant opportunity for technical innovation. Walt oversaw the creation of a multiplane rig that allowed the camera to capture three overlapping backgrounds. And this gave the animators freedom to move different frames at different speeds and create an illusion of depth. Still, despite the exciting technical developments and Walt's own track record of success, people were counting on Snow White to fail. The production was seen as too ambitious and too costly, and Hollywood jokingly came to refer to the project as Disney's Folly. But Hollywood has proven time and time again that some of its greatest hits can come from the projects that no one expected to succeed. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs premiered in December of 1937 and went on to earn nearly $8 million in its initial run, or over $100 million today. When you factor in the various re-releases that have occurred over the last century and adjust for inflation, Snow White ranks as the 10th highest grossing movie of all time. Walt won an honorary Oscar that year for his commitment to innovation in film. More importantly, the runaway success of the movie gave Disney the financial means to massively expand their operation. 
In 1938, Walt and Roy purchased a 56-acre lot in Burbank, California, which they christened as the headquarters of the renamed Walt Disney Studios. The entertainment giant still operates from that lot today. Walt wanted to maintain the momentum and the massive expectations he'd gained from Snow White. He oversaw two new feature-length cartoons, Pinocchio and Fantasia, in 1940. Both productions lost money. Overseas ticket sales had been a big part of Disney's market share, but with World War II going on, there were few in Europe who were going to the movies. Walt had reportedly been much easier to be around in 1938 and 1939, following the universal, critical, and commercial success he had enjoyed from Snow White. But with the double failure of Pinocchio and Fantasia, he reverted back to his old habits of being abusive to his employees. He started cutting salaries in 1941, all the while increasing the workload for his animators. The conflict boiled over that same year, when 550 of Disney's animators walked off the lot. A strike had begun. Roy forced Walt to take a vacation while he handled the strike. But negotiations stalled when a number of the striking animators were drafted to fight in World War II. Roy eventually did make an agreement with the workers who remained. Ironically, the strike and the subsequent loss of workers helped Disney in the long run. With his workforce downsized, Walt was forced to curb his ambitions on the studio's current project, Dumbo. As a result, that film was made very cheaply and turned a profit for Disney when it was released in late 1941. The studio really hit its stride in the late 1940s and early 1950s after the war ended. With the subsequent releases of Cinderella, Treasure Island, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan, Disney Studios became the name in feature-length family films. But, of course, for Walt, nothing was ever enough. And so, even as his studio flourished, he began to look toward the next horizon. Walt's two daughters were nearly grown up by the early 1950s. As a father, he'd tried to spend as much time with them as he could, a rejection of the values he'd learned from his own father. But his business had always been at the back of his mind. Walt, who turned 50 in 1951, began to reflect on his life, his regrets, and his ambitions. He thought back to the simple joy he'd felt entertaining customers in Bert Hudson's barbershop back in Kansas City, the freeing motion of the trains he'd ridden as a boy, the easy laughs he'd been able to conjure with his simple, silly cartoons. Walt wanted to create a place where families could have fun together. His initial vision was a state-of-the-art train that would take customers through Hollywood and across the Disney lot so that they could get an inside look at his business. But he soon realized that the inner workings of a movie studio had limited public appeal. Walt wanted to make a place where parents and children would go again and again. Walt had taken his daughters to theme parks when they were younger. He knew that the current idea of a theme park set a low bar and that he could put his imagination and resources behind a new kind of amusement park. His ambition for the size of the project quickly made it clear that he wouldn't be able to build it anywhere near his studio. He ultimately purchased 160 acres of land in Anaheim, south of Los Angeles. 
Walt founded Walter Elias Disney Enterprises in 1952 with the explicit purpose of researching, developing, and building the technology needed for his theme park. A park of that scale had never been attempted before. Walt had difficulty securing the financing through conventional means, and so he broadened his search. Walt eventually partnered with the ABC television network. He agreed to make a show for the network in exchange for financing and an ownership stake in the park. The result of the partnership was Walt Disney's Disneyland, which premiered in 1954. Walt had shrewdly made his obligation to ABC into a fantastic marketing vehicle for the park. The Disneyland program was an anthology series hosted by Walt that previewed the park and unveiled the various attractions to the public. The show also featured small mini-episodes about fictionalized adventures in the various lands of the park, such as Frontierland and Tomorrowland. Disneyland officially opened on July 17, 1955. To this day, it is one of the most visited theme parks in the world. One of the things that Walt emphasized about the park was that it would be ever-changing. Like Walt's own imagination, the park was boundless, always expanding, changing, improving. To Walt, this was his greatest legacy, a park that was never finished, so that multiple generations of families could come again and again and always experience something new. In 1959, during the park's first major expansion, it unveiled the first-ever monorail track in America. By that point, Walt had largely handed off the duties from the movie-making side of his company so that he could focus on innovations in the Disney parks. In 1964, he was asked to consult and develop robotic attractions for the World's Fair. In a way, Walt had come full circle. He described later in life how his father's stories of the 1893 Chicago World's Fair had played a big role in inspiring Disneyland. Walt designed a choir of multicultural robotic children singing the song, It's a Small World, and a river and boat track that people would use to float through the exhibit. After the fair concluded, he relocated the attraction to Disneyland, and the It's a Small World ride remains a staple of Disney parks to this day. Ah, so the World's Fair is the reason we all get that song stuck in our heads. Yes. As Walt's park business grew, he made a point to invest in its future. He partnered with the California Institute of the Arts and oversaw redevelopment of the curriculum there to emphasize technical education in animation, film production, and theater. Walt saw Cal Arts as a training ground for future Disney engineers. The school does sport a large number of alumni Disney employees today. But despite all he'd accomplished with his movies and his park and his educational efforts, Walt still wasn't satisfied. So in the mid-1960s, he turned his efforts to his last great endeavor. Disneyland was a massive international success. But visitor data showed Walt that only 5% of park guests came from the East Coast of the United States. Additionally, by the 1960s, his company had run into trouble in expanding Disneyland. The park had been so successful that hotels and restaurant chains started buying up the adjacent land to serve customers. Disney wanted a new park, one that would service East Coast visitors and be unencumbered by any rival businesses. In 1963, 
Walt bought a plot of almost 25,000 acres in southern Florida through a series of proxy companies so that competitors wouldn't know what he was up to. The Florida Project, as the park came to be known during its secretive construction, took up all of Walt's time and effort. The undeveloped land he'd purchased provided endless possibilities. He came to obsess over the idea of a futuristic suburb filled with the latest technology that would serve as the central hub of the park. He started calling this hub Epcot. Walt had always known that he'd never see the end of Disneyland. That was by design. The park was meant to outlast him and always be growing. But tragically, he never even got to see the opening of Disney World. In November of 1966, Walt, a lifelong smoker, was diagnosed with lung cancer. He was hospitalized on November 30th. On December 15th, Walt Disney passed away. Walt Disney World finally opened in 1971. Walt's vision of Epcot as a suburb was never realized, but Epcot as a celebration of futuristic optimism is one of the main sections of the park that still operates today. Disney's legacy presides over the entertainment industry, too. The studio Walt founded with his brother back in the 1920s now oversees billion-dollar film franchises and TV networks, including ABC, the partnering network in Disneyland from all those years ago. There was one operational Disney park when Walt Disney died. Today, there are six resorts and 12 parks around the world. The studio employs a workforce of over 200,000 and, as of 2019, is one of the top five biggest media conglomerates in the world. And all of that, in Disney's own words, started with a mouse. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Paul Liebeskind. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Historical Figures is written by Nzinga Murray and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>